Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big struggle. No one in power ain't giving up nothing. No change without struggle. No one in power. WORT 89.9 FM Listener Sponsored Community Radio Madison, Wisconsin And hello, welcome to A Public Affair I am Esti Dinor We will be talking today about uh, environmental issues near and far in about a half an hour We will be talking about the horrifying possibility that uranium mining will um, start again in the Grand Canyon. But before that, we will be talking about the nearer situation of illegal logging, especially of um, old growth trees in the Shawamagon Nicolay National Forest. And uh, with us to talk about that is Andy Olson. He's a senior policy advocate at the Environment Law and Policy Center right here in Madison. Hello, Andy. Thank you for joining us today. Good afternoon, Esty. It's great to be here. So I want to start with the history of uh, logging. And let me start with a quick personal story. Many years ago, when my kids were young and um, I was married, Um, we decided to go to the Shuamagon Nicolay National Forest, um, thinking that we'd be surrounded by old, tall trees and that it would be an amazing experience. And it turned out to be a really quite um, disappointing experience because all we saw were for, for miles and miles and miles were, young trees that were not all i mean basically it looked like a place that had been clear cut and it has trees that were maybe 10 20 years old so um tell tell us about the history of logging in that forest um and and why Why did it look then and maybe still now the way it did? I never felt the need to go back there actually after that. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. There are some really great uh, areas in the in the national forest, although uh, I can certainly understand the problems uh, caused by logging for families trying to recreate in the forest. And um, you know there's um, There's a lot to say there, but but the Schwamigan Nicolay National Forest was created in northern Wisconsin over the remnants of the, the big cut that occurred in Wisconsin and other states uh, in the north central Midwest in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And there was massive uh, clear cuts at that time that took place, um, you know, and you can look that up online and some of the stories are just amazing. Uh, they floated vast amounts of uh, <clears throat> felled, uh, then old growth trees, very large trees down the rivers to the mills. And um, since then, you know, the, the forest was created. And part of the idea of the forest was 
the National Forest was to restore that forest. Um, but as you note, um, you know, logging is uh, really a priority for the U.S. Forest Service. There are many former staff who, you know, say timber is king uh, within the U.S. Forest Service. Uh, there is actually a law that was passed in 1960, year I was born, uh, which says that the, the, our national forests are supposed to serve multiple uses for habitat, for recreation, as your family saw it, uh, for water quality and for timber. But at the end of the day, you know, it's it's timber that um, has got targets within the Forest Service. They don't have targets for habitat, recreation, or water quality, or any of the other supposed multiple uses. So there's really a distortion at the Forest Service in favor of logging, and the culture is very uh, strongly in favor of that. And the Schwamigan Nicolay is one of the most heavily logged national forests of the 128 national forests. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of deeply ingrained uh, culture in favor of, of uh, logging in, in the Schwamigan Nicolay. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of support from elected officials as well, which is kind of part of the problem. Um, I remember getting screamed at in David Obie's office in 2006 when I was in there to talk about uh, renewable energy. And we were suing the Forest Service at the time, and they were not happy uh, for the impact in the mills. So, you know, there, there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah, so can you explain briefly why it is that the U.S. Forest Service, which um, um, a layperson might think it means that they are there to serve the forest and, and us who want to have forests for many reasons, not just want but need, but instead it is um, apparently just a an agency that um, supports the timber industry? Why, why is it that a governmental um, agency um, would actually be all about cutting trees? Good question. And uh, I just want to start by saying I, you know, when I started doing this work in earnest, I had a, a much uh, you know, more favorable view of the Forest Service before looking under the hood so to speak. Um, and I have, though, I will say, in light of all the critical talk, I'll say I've met a lot of uh, great people that work for the Forest Service now and have in the past that care about a lot of ecological values and try to advance those within the Forest Service. And there's diversity among the staff. Um, but within the agency, those who call the shots are uh, tend to be uh, very oriented towards uh, timber sales. And the reasons that occurs are a continual mystery uh, when the law says otherwise. Um, but, you know, it's just a part of human and American society that commercial interests often uh, dominate. Um, should I explain how the timber sales work in the National Forest? Would that help? Sure, please. Yeah. So um, timber sales um, work in a number of different steps. First, there's environmental review. Uh, which is required under the National Environmental Policy Act and which should consider all the other uses in addition to timber. And then um, once that's done within that section of the forest that was reviewed, then they sell off um, rights to log different stands of that forest to different companies and there, there are bids that are made. So in the environmental review process, um, what we have observed in Schwamigan Nicolay is, is that is often shortchanged and that was certainly the case in Four Mile. 
And um, they used to do environmental impact statements, which were more in-depth reviews. And now they've moved entirely to, uh, or almost entirely, to environmental assessments, which are much lighter reviews and which they tend to you know, do a lot of copy and paste from previous assessments and um, that we've observed and others have pointed out to us and recycle a lot of the text over and over again. Um, and um, once the environmental, you know, they'll, and, and they'll, they'll designate a portion of the forest with, you know, on a map and then give it a name. So Four Mile is east of uh, Eagle River. It's um, <clears throat> about, and it includes uh, about 12,000 acres of logging. Now, once the environmental review is done, then they'll, they'll put those sales out. And after that, the Forest Service is supposed to monitor and evaluate the cuts. And, you know, the contract terms, and this is where the, the, log, the illegal logging took place, the contract terms uh, typically state uh, that this should be on frozen ground conditions, which includes ground frozen uh, to six inches of depth. And why is that important, Andy? Well, these days, um, a lot of logging is done with very heavy equipment. You've got logging trucks that take the, the logs out of the forest after they're felled. And then you've got the mechanized harvesters um, that are, you know, very heavy equipment. They've got wide tires, but still they're pretty heavy and they can do a lot of damage to the forest floor. So in the, the sunfish timber sale, um, you know, I've been there about four or five times over the past couple of years, depending on how you count it. And um, what we see today, what I saw in my visit two weeks ago, was that these uh, these uh, harvesters left ruts in the forest floor. And, you know, you can walk on the logging roads, which are pretty large, and, you know, the ground there is, is hard and compacted, and the water does not infiltrate into the soil. So I often would see, you know, once I put those logging roads in, you would see standing water on the roads, even now in February we saw that. And then um, in the forest itself, off of the logging road, the water infiltrates because it's not compacted. And when the soil is compacted by those those machines, then it's it's more difficult for plants of all types and sizes to grow from, um, you know, the, the tiniest to the largest. It uh, inhibits sprouting and, uh, and and plant growth and water infiltration. Mm -hmm. So. What is the plan for the four mile area and um, what are your concerns about it? Well, uh, our concerns um, revolve around a number of different environmental values uh, and especially around the process and of, that the project took. So in terms of environmental values, we're concerned for the protection of mature and old growth trees that are vital to countering climate change, as we know, and it has been proven internationally over and over again. We're concerned about impacts to habitat uh, for animals such as the, the American Martin, which is um, of great importance to the Ojibwe tribes and is an Ojibwe um, tribal uh, animal, and, and also um, for the wood turtle, which is, uh, you know, got small populations, it slowly reproduces in various types of, uh, you know, of birds such as red-shouldered hawk and the goshawk. And, you know, when, when they go in and do, especially these very heavy cuts, as we see in sunfish and plant otherwise in four mile, uh, they, they take out a lot of habitat. And, and, you know, what I've observed is that each tree type supports different types of animals in the forest at different stages of its life. 
and when they remove those, then they remove, you know, the kind of the, the food web that, that it supports. And that has uh, impact on other species of animals. Yeah. And, 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 no, so go ahead. Finish. And, and then also, you know, just a, a huge part problem with Four Mile is that the, the planning for the project started in 2017, and it was um, a Trump-style project. So it was uh, developed and planned under Trump policies to just dramatically increase uh, logging in the national forest and to dramatically reduce environmental protections in the process. And so as an example of that, um, the Forest Service, the Sromica Nicolay Eagle River Florence District uh, refused to consider the climate impacts of their actions. And the whole point of environmental review is to, you know, basically, in my view, be adult about what we're doing and consider the consequences of our actions. And so they, they said they don't have to, and they pointed to, um, Donald Trump's revoking those requirements that uh, were put in place under President Obama. Um, and so they, they refused to do that. And then the comments, they said, and by the way, we're doing a great job because trees capture carbon. Um, and they said that without analyzing. Um, but then they signed their decision notice 10 days after the 2020 presidential election when they knew federal policy would change. And sure enough, federal policy changed on inauguration day, 10 weeks after they claimed a finding of no significant impact. And President Biden revoked the Trump action that said you don't have to consider climate impacts. So what that means is by rushing to approve the project in the lame duck period, they grandfathered that under Trump policies. So now we've got the spectacle of the Biden Forest Service carrying out a project that involves uh, heavy logging of mature and old growth trees. Uh, that's in direct contradiction to policies that have been put in place by President Biden. And they just refuse to reconsider their actions, even to pause and to do review under the new rules. Yeah, that is so disturbing. And, and what are they doing with these um, old growth trees and, and all the trees that they are cutting down? What, what are they for? Good question. Uh, so as a part of, you know, just trying to keep up on what's going on, we've uh, filed a number of uh, Freedom of Information Act requests that, to get the documents for planning the project. So we, you know, understand the factual basis they're using and so forth. So, um, so one thing that those documents showed us is that the Forest Service expects over 80%, 80% of the logging the timber of the timber logged from the forest to go towards pulp for manufacture of paper. So these tr trees will be ground down, these logs will be ground down and they will be pulped and they'll be used to make a variety of paper products. Um, exactly which pulp plants we use them, we don't know because the Forest Service doesn't keep track of that. Um, unlike the Wisconsin DNR for logging in, in state forest, um, the, the Forest Service doesn't keep track of what happens to the to the timber. Mm. Which by itself is um, is strange. But so um, two questions. First of all, is there a market even for these um, for these trees? Let's let's start with that one. 
Sure. Um, well, as, as a part of our request for reconsideration under the National Environmental Policy Act, which we uh, sent with 28 other groups around the country in Wisconsin, remember, uh, we cited, you know, we, we showed industry reports uh, for timber for the pulp industry that show that they've got very high inventories of timber on hand and they, they've got low prices for that timber, which is great for the mills, right? Because then they spend less, they can, um, you know, make more profit that way. So, but just in terms of, you know, the Forest Service concern for timber markets, there's no emergency today for supplying pulp markets. They've made that their priority by making such a priority out of logging in four mile, but there, there's no pulp market emergency. What we do have, as President Biden has pointed out, is we do have a climate emergency. And as he has said in executive orders, which go to all the agencies, including the Forest Service, we must confront climate change. And a part of what you know drives much of us in this work is that that message is just not getting through at all to the Forest Service. You know, well, I shouldn't say that, to, to, to quarters of the Forest Service, especially for people, you know, with responsibility for logging decisions. And, and they have chosen, in this case, to prioritize serving pulp markets over um, confronting climate change. And I'll also point out, as part of their environmental review, they come right out and say that there's too many old trees in the Four Mile area. You know, as in, it hasn't been logged enough. And, you know, they've got standards they use for uneven aged forests, you know, and they've got to have forests of, you know, this age and that, uh, a distribution of ages in the forest. And they found that this had too many old trees. And so to get more diversity of age in the forest, they cut down all these old trees. Well, I'll tell you, when I was on the ground uh, in Sunfish two weeks ago, I went up there and hiked it for two days. Um, hiked it, I just had to drive down logging roads now. And... Boy, it, um, it's just, there's massive piles of old timber all over. We counted up um, with intern Amanda here in the office, myself and the field. We counted up the rings in one tree and we and it was over 150 years old. I would, would not have guessed that from the diameter of the tree. Uh, but that's a pretty old tree. And I'll point out that's got a lot of carbon in it. You know, part of the beauty and the magic of trees is how they grow out of thin air through the magic of photosynthesis. Mm. Wonderful. Um, but now that carbon is going to be returned to the atmosphere. What does it mean, too many old trees? I don't get the concept. Well, within, um, you know, forestry, um, there are, you know, criteria they use. And, and, and within the forest plan that was passed in 2004 at, at the National Forest, uh, they've got goals for diversity of age of trees. And they're trying to avoid, you know, especially monocultures. I mean, if you've been on a tree farm, you've seen trees that are all one age and on long rows after row after row and their uniform height. And, and there's a whole lot of problems with that approach. And in some parts of this forest, you know, we've got like, for example, red pine plantations that were planted 100 years ago uh, in, in the cutover. And, uh, you know, those don't, uh, support, you know, the full range of, uh, you know, of habitat and other environmental values that we all seek. So, you know, a part of their goal is to have a diversity of ages in the forest, which kind of makes sense. But, you know, we're, we've got new science now. Since, since the 2004 forest plan was done, there's new science showing that mature and old growth trees are vital for confronting climate change. And we want other countries to, to do that. 
you know, the U.S. is all about, yeah, Indonesia, Brazil, all these other countries, you should be not cutting down your forests as we continue to do the same. Um, and one of the arguments that we make is that if we expect other countries to curtail their logging, we should lead by example and, and protect the remaining mature and old growth forest. Yeah, yeah. I like, um, I like the, the, the thought of um, a forest as a very diverse thing. Um, different ages, different kinds, um, each one of them supporting some part of the biodiversity. And I'm thinking a healthy forest is like a healthy society. And um, we certainly don't have that in the United States either. So, um, you know, kind of interesting to see how um, a society is reflected really in what it does with the natural world. But um, let me ask you the very important question of climate emergency, which you mentioned. And um, so there is that. And then there's also, whenever we talk here about um, places that um, basically commercial, um, or I would even say greed, um, interests are, are want to destroy, um, these are places that are actually um, not, not just important to us, but they also are, um, financially speaking, um, good places because they bring tourism, they bring hunting, they, um, they bring ways for the locals to survive and thrive because of the beauty and, and joy of being in these places. So have you looked at the, like the, the financial effect of um, bringing joy to people, shall we say, versus um, cutting trees for pulp, for example? And right. Yeah, you know, we've not quantified that, but there have been a lot of studies to look at the impacts of tourism um, and um, recreation and, and those economies. And they're really important. They're important in Eagle River. I mean, in Eagle River, you could see people recreating and you could also see, you know, the large uh, harvesters on flatbed trailers going through town. So those economies are existing side by side. Uh, the timber industry is more organized, in my view, and, and experience, and they speak up more directly to the Forest Service and so forth. And um, I see we have a call, so let's let's hear from the caller. Okay. Well, we do have a caller on the line. Uh, Bob, you're on the air. Hi. Thanks for taking the call. Great show. I happen to be on lunch. Glad I could catch it. Um, two questions. One may just be me being naive. Uh, so um, first, if, if Forest Service is a division of the executive branch, if there's an executive order, how can they just ignore it? And second question, um, if the old growth is going to have to be logged, isn't there a more profitable and better use like building or furniture materials than just using for pulp? Because they can use, you know, young growth trees for that. Uh, thank you. I'll listen off air. Yeah, thank you. Good questions, Andy. Yes, thank you for that point. And, and you know, I mean, President Biden has put a lot of uh, 
good policies in place, which frankly, I was uh, surprised and delighted to see such as an inventory of all growth on in the Forest Service lands and Bureau of Land Management lands, as well as now um, in, de in December, mid-December, we saw a, a national uh, old growth plan amendment for every forest plan in the Forest Service, which is great. Of course, what we see at the end of that process can be very different from the hope we see now. So that's re really, really helpful to see. In terms of why the Forest Service um, doesn't always abide by you know, the policy set by the democratically elected president. That's an ongoing uh, mystery to me. Um, I read a number of different Forest Service documents and in, in the flat country project in Oregon, um, there was a staff memo in which they said, yeah, we saw those policies, but do those play to us? Wait, those play to us? Are we supposed to respond to that? And, and it was just like, you know, they're slow to act until maybe somebody gets them a memo to say, yeah, the, the presidential policies apply to you because, you know, you're and, and um, you know, I mean, some cynical people might see some, you know, um, some evasiveness in there. Uh, and I guess I'm one of them. Um, but uh, so, you know, we've got four mile, which is one 180 degrees opposed going in the opposite direction from federal policy as reflected by the 2020 election. Um, and, and in terms of why using these trees for, uh, for pulp in terms of some of the other uses, um, you know, it's really up to the market to decide that. So they come in and, and, and log it. And then, you know, based on, I guess, discussions with the industry, the agency says this is where it's going. And I saw numerous logs with pulp painted on them when I, when I was up in uh, the Sunfish Sale area. So the agency can't say where it goes under current rules. I will say there are some efforts to try to replace in, in a building to replace metal and concrete with wood. And the idea there is that then that wood would contain the, you know, the, the, the carbon and, and sequester it over time. And there's a lot of potential benefit in that and some reason for optimism, but at the same time, uh, you know, we, we've got to be realistic about the, the waste uh, in the whole production cycle, too. Yeah. Well, we have another um, call in. Um, Sergio, you're on, you're on the air. Good afternoon. Thank you for the show. Very nice. I wanted to ask if you could speak to the impact of the fungus, uh, the total oversight and dismissal of the existence of the fungus in the impact of that destruction to the environment. Yeah, are you still there, Sergio? Yes, I am. Yeah, are, are you referring to the mycorrhizal network in, in the rift systems? Yeah, like that is so important that many many of us don't know much about. Sure. I don't know if the forest industry is into that and to the depths of that knowledge. Okay. Right. So, um, you know, there's been a lot of new science over the past, I guess, 10 or 15 years about um, all the things going on under the soil and forest and the mycorrhizal networks uh, between root systems of trees and how that leads to sharing nutrients between trees. And there are mother trees uh, that can support other trees by providing nutrients to them, even across species. 
and um, it's pretty fascinating stuff. And you know, when they go in and take these trees out, they're, they're just I, I've not seen in my readings any consideration for what goes on underground. Uh, you know, in in terms of the um, you know the impacts on those on those networks and so forth. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that discussion uh, in the near future. And I know a lot of uh, my friends and allies in the environmental community are looking pretty closely at that. Um, but it's it's not a consideration that the Forest Service takes into account right now. And just in terms of science in general, one of uh, President Biden's executive orders in his first week of office is to respect the science and to restore science to decision making. And um, you know what we've seen from the Forest Service over the years is that they're pretty selective in the science that they choose to uh, to use. And in the case of Four Mile, they did cite some climate science, including from the um, from the International Panel on Climate Change, um, but they kind of, they they skipped a whole lot of it. They skipped 12 years of climate science when they did that, and so they they reached way back and ignored some of the more recent stuff that's done. And you know, I mean, for, for me, that just feeds the cynicism that they're not really respecting the science. Mm -hmm. And let me um, reintroduce our guest. He is Andy Olsen. Uh, senior Policy Advocate at the Environmental Law and Policy Center in Madison, Wisconsin. We are having um, difficulties reaching our second scheduled um, guest, so we will keep talking with Andy until she hopefully shows up. Um, uh, but in the meantime, yes, you too are welcome to call 608-256-2001. And um, we do have another caller on the line. Barbara, hi. Hi. I just wanted to mention that um, the workers at DNR in Wisconsin, um, a lot of the scientists there are working on low-paid, limited-term employee contracts, and it they're just being kept year after year in this status. And uh, we've got, like, 65 people who are in forestry positions, not technicians even, they're full scientists, you know, forestry specialists, and they're paid far less than the permanent workers. So um, it's really duct tape and bailing wire over there um, in terms of a lot of the scientific areas. And there's like people who are doing scientific and forestry work in two different classes for no particular reason, it paid very differently and with low benefits in one case, the limited term employees. So I just wanted to pass that on. I don't think it's sustainable and it's been that way for many years and I think it's the system's gonna break here. Yeah, and thank you, Barbara, for bringing that up. Do you know, I mean, as you were talking, Barbara, I was thinking that, um, you know, in the same vein as Trump, that maybe these are scientists that were hired um, during the Walker years, and that's why they are not paid well. Do you know if that's correct? Or not? Well, I think what happened is the limited-term employee LTE system was yeah. meant to be like a short-term employment, and what happened over the years long before 2011 is that it was just easier for agencies to hire LTEs and keep them on and keep renewing them every six months and yeah. or whatever. And um, 
next thing you know, they're there 5, 10, 20 years, and they've never gotten any paid sick leave or vacation leave, and they're paid a lower rate. So um, it's it's abused more in some agencies than others, but DNR seems to really be relying for its core functions a lot on these uh, LTE scientists. Um, so it, it's just not okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, thank you, Andy. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, with the caller and you know that that's been a real problem for many years i i was uh worked as an lte for a number of years myself back in the tommy thompson administration and um you know they kept extending those and they they ran that uh employment through the university of wisconsin milwaukee so they wouldn't seem to be to have more staff on the books and so you know now that i'm approaching retirement age i i don't have you know i I did not have anything contributed to the retirement fund for that so you know i'm gonna i'm kind of paying the cost these days and you know with the dnr and especially with the division of forestry that kind of thing has impacts in the real world uh, out in the forest so you know I, I i try to talk to staff from all the agencies uh dnr or forest service whatever and um, i learn a lot from them and one thing that I've learned is that, um, you know, in forestry, there's very little uh, follow-up to logging in, in our state forest and some of our best state forests even. And and so, you know, they'll, they'll go in and do the logging and, and they need to get back in there and do restoration activities, but those often are not done and there's little, you know, comprehensive follow-through. Um, and so that's a problem. But, and, you know, they're, they're overseeing all these loggers out there in the field and um, as Henry Redmond has reported in the Wisconsin Examiner in a series of articles I encourage people to check out, um, there's been real problems with uh, logging uh, down close, too close to the waterline in, in state forest. And there's been a lot of documentation showing that from one of our state's top foresters. Uh, so, you know, what, when they do that, when they cut those corners, they're not just taking it out of the, the, the employee's pocketbook, which should be a problem for them. Uh, but they're also harming Wisconsin natural resources by running the operation that way. And we, we need to, if, if we're going to allow logging, we need to adequately fund these positions to, you know, make sure that it's done responsibly and we're considering all the consequences. Mm-hmm. So, um, Ben, um, you have a question. And um, after that, we'll have our um, second guest for whatever time we have left. Go ahead, Ben. Quickly, if you can, Excellent. Thank you for this uh, interesting show. My question is related to, uh, I guess, the amount of board foot waste. Because um, for every tree taken, there's a few trees taken down for access, as well as any of the limbing that happens. I'm wondering if your guests could speak to that. And secondly, if I could piggyback on that question, um, you know, I've heard a lot about the Menominee Indian uh reservation and some of the uh, logging methods uh, like selective cutting and all that and if that's gaining any traction on a statewide level and I'll take my answer off air thank you thank you Andy. okay yes yeah, so I'll try to keep track of all that um, so in terms of the waste um, yeah we've got a lot of new logging roads that are being put into the forest in the four mile project area that's one of the objections that we raised uh, they are also closing a few as well which tends to mean they put a little berm in front of them, which uh, many four-wheelers can get over, uh, but they don't restore them. Um, I was first uh, 
in this area in October of 2022. I went back in October of 2023, and they had begun construction of the logging roads in the Sunfish Timber Sale area. I brought my tape measure. They were 32 feet and more across, uh, which is pretty wide. And, you know, a logging truck is eight feet wide, and then they park the logs on the side of those roads, too, in many areas. Um, but when they do that, those are essentially, th those are very long clear cuts in the forest. They open the canopy up, which allows more predator birds in to pursue various animals that would prefer not to be eaten um, and, re you know, reduce the habitat value in that way. Uh, there's a lot of problems with those roads. Um, and then he mentioned the Menominee tribe. Um, it's really amazing. I encourage people to take a look on Google Earth or Google something with, uh, you know, satellite or aerial imagery, you can see the Menominee County, Menominee Tribe from outer space. And the space station uses the, the boundary to calibrate instrumentation because it's su such a dramatic difference uh, to the society beyond it. They use sustainable, more selective harvesting uh, than used by the Forest Service. They use more labor-intensive approaches. Um, they're really careful in what they take. Um, I, don't think they consider trees too old to be allowed to stand in the forest, uh, for example. So there's just a lot of difference there. And, and just if I could just say real quickly too, um, they have moved away from clear cuts to a certain degree in the, in the national forest, but the selection cuts are still pretty heavy. And we have showed, shown, um, you know, again with the expert advice from a top forester that they're doing very heavy logging in four mile above their own standards, about 50% more than they typically do for what they call selection cut. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Andy Olsen, Senior Policy Advocate at the Environmental Law and Policy Center here in um, Madison. And um, thank you to all our callers, really great um, questions. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, um, Andy. And um, we are going to go straight to our other um, guest for today. Sandy Barr is the director for the Grand Canyon Arizona chapter of Sierra Club. Originally from Michigan, she has made the Sonoran Desert her home for more than 35 years and worked actively on environmental protection issues in Arizona for the past 30 years. Um, thank you, Sandy, for um, joining us, and sorry about whatever confusion um, got you here a little late. Um, tell us, please, quickly the history of uranium mining in the area of the Grand Canyon. Um, this is nothing new, so let's, let's learn about what has happened in the past and what is happening currently. Um. Sure, and I think the mix-up was on my end, so I apologize. But um, yes, the um, uranium mining has a long, um, sordid history uh, in the region. The Navajo Nation and Hopi tribe have been especially affected by uranium mining. And to this day, there continue to be more than 500 uh, uranium mines that have not been uh, cleaned up on the Navajo Nation. Uh, these mines have contaminated waters. You know, they're not, a lot of them are not um, secured in any way. And uh, we know that one of the very dangerous things about 
having um, any kind of, you know, concentration of uranium on the surface is for people breathing it in. And so they're there are there's evidence of increased cancers um, on the Navajo Nation that's been studied um, fairly um, strongly, and so you know there's a long history there. There's also a uranium mine that has not been cleaned up that is actually inside Grand Canyon National Park itself, called the Orphan Mine, and uh, and then. There, there were thousands of uranium mining claims on these uh, Forest Service lands and Bureau of Land Management lands, public lands, around Grand Canyon. Uh, most of those were, uh, you know, with, withdrawn be- when there was a mineral withdrawal and then the National Monument was established. But unfortunately, there were a couple of mines that were considered to have valid rights to move forward. And so right now there's a mine called Pinion Plain Mine that is removing ore and uh, potentially uh, contaminating the waters that feed Grand Canyon and are the lifeblood for the Havasupai tribe. So, uh, yes, a bad history. Well, I, I know there's a lot more, but we have very little time. So um, I'm, I'm sure about 100% of our listeners know that uranium is not good for your health or for the health of the planet. But if you can uh, just briefly lay out the many issues with uranium mines and what it does to humans, wildlife, uh, the environment generally. What what's wrong with mining uranium? Well, um, I, I would say you know we're we're not supportive of things like uh, nuclear power either because from cradle mm-hmm. to grave it, there are issues. Uh, and yeah, it's radioactive. And so when uh, when it gets in our body, uh, it contributes to a lot of different cancers. That's especially a huge concern. And and in addition to the health issues, there are economic issues as well. For example, the Havasupai tribe, they rely on tourism for their economy. And imagine how that would be affected if their waters are contaminated with uranium. So that is another issue with, um, you know, with having it. But if, you know, uranium does occur naturally, but it is, you know, it's in place, right? And so it's, it's, it's generally not leaching into the groundwater or, you know, it's certainly not getting into the air where again, it's, 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 super dangerous for for breathing in and we've seen you know high con- higher concentrations of uranium even along haul routes for where they haul the ore even before the ore is processed um, there are higher levels and of course there have been uh, other mines uh, in uranium mines in the region where 
they exceeded the health-based standards uh, for uranium outside the fence perimeter. And uh, again, a huge concern. Uh, there are, uh, you know, drinking water standards for uranium bid water. We don't want we don't want really much at all uh, in our water. And uh, you know, our concern is that, uh, and and it's not just and it's not just us. Uh, hydrologists, hydrogeologists have pointed out that there is a real risk to these waters and and yes to the wildlife um if, you know they too are affected in a lot of the same ways that we are uh by uranium exposure mm-hmm. and do we know if there are uh, cancer clusters there or clusters of other unusual illnesses well i mean they just started removing the ore at this particular mine that I was talking about but yeah there are increased um, uh, cancer cancers on the Navajo nation for example um, there are a number of researchers that have have looked at that and so yes uh, there is evidence of that now what the mining companies say and they're actually you going on a tour right now a PR tour saying we're making much ado about nothing um, but what they say is modern quote modern uranium mining uh, is you know it's it's safe it does, you know it doesn't you're not going to have the same exposures and while there are better regulations than there were you know 30 40 50 years ago there still are a lot of the same issues. If that uranium contaminates our groundwater, and some people may have noticed, but Arizona does have a water issue. We like need to keep our water clean and safe and available for drinking water. Um, that uh, once, it, once it's in there, you, you know you can't clean it up. There is no effective means for, for cleaning it up. So that's, that's you know a big issue, and we. You know the the mining company is already with this pinion plain mine, which is near Grand Canyon. Um, they have pierced an upper aquifer, so there's a perched what they call a perched aquifer. It's on you know it's on top of this lower, larger aquifer. so they they pierce that, and there are you know millions of gallons of water pouring out of that that they're now putting in this pond. And, and wildlife have you know been able to get at that pond and and they were even spraying it out into the forest for a while because the pond was full um, but the piercing of that upper aquifer also brings with it concerns about um, contamination for the lower aquifer mm-hmm mm-hmm So the Grand Canyon is also full of sacred uh, Native American sites. And um, last year, I think it was President Biden designated, um, and I, I will not try to say the <laughs> Native name, and I'm not sure if it's the entire canyon or part of it, but he designated the National Monument 
so so the lands around it can uh, be protected from new uranium mining but um so if you can tell us about that briefly but then arizona the arizona um um, uh, um state government is looking at the possibility of going against it and um, starting mining again. So can you explain this whole sordid situation as, as you noted earlier? Yeah, yeah. So um, one of our nation's laws is the Antiquities Act, and that allows the president to establish national monuments and after 13 tribes that have strong ties to the region requested it, President Biden proclaimed the Baj, Nuwabjo, Itta, Kukvini, ancestral footprints of the Grand Canyon National Monument. And um, the president incorporated the indigenous name Baj, Nuwabjo, uh, means where tribes roam or the Havasupai and Itakukvini is our ancestral footprint in Hopi. And um, that protected nearly 1 million acres of federal public lands that are adjacent to Grand Canyon National Park. So they're National Forest Bureau of Land Management lands, and it protects them from future mining and development. There are development pressures in the region as well. And that was done to protect these lands that include their, their very, you know, and I won't, I, I won't pretend to speak for the tribes, but they have spoken for themselves and said, you know, this is a really important area for us. Um, there's the Red Butte traditional uh, cultural area that is uh, included in this and yes lot, uh, lots of significance to at least 13 tribes um, this region is you know it's not the Havasupai they uh, live down in Grand Canyon and um, but have traditional connections to all of those lands around Grand Canyon so so the president did that. Um, our legislature, it's not the governor, our legislature um, has objected to it, calling it a land grab, as if those lands somehow belong to the state. And if anyone should be talking about a land grab, it would be the tribes, right? But anyway, yeah. they um, they object to it, and uh, they filed a lawsuit against it. Uh, similar to uh, lawsuits uh, filed in Utah and uh, against the Bears Ears National Monument. And then um, they also have a resolution in the legislature asking the president and Congress to rescind the monument and to not establish any more ever and not to protect any additional um, federal public lands uh, ever. <laughs> so uh, very short-sighted by the Arizona legislature. Uh, it's not the first time they've done this kind of thing, but um, it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty outrageous. 
Yeah, well, uh, might they succeed in in the face of, you know, again, Biden, the president declaring it a monument and um, looking at uh, possibly worst case scenario, what happens if Trump becomes the president again? Well, that is the worst case scenario in many ways, but um, we know what Trump will do because he's already done it. When he um, was president, uh, he pared back the Bears Ears uh, National Monument and the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. And, uh, you know, he has, he's definitely not someone that supports any kinds of protections for land, water, wildlife, air. Um, public health, uh, you know, I mean, he really did uh, quite a number on the agencies and their ability to manage the land in a protective way. And, um, yeah, we know he will go after uh, these national monuments. And if the monuments are rescinded and the mineral withdrawal as well, uh, that would open the lands up to more mining and of particular concern, more uranium mining. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have about a half a minute left. Um, what can we do from up here in Wisconsin? How can we help you all? Well, I think the best thing that we all can do is help to inform people about the benefits of these um, public lands, about the need to hear the voices of indigenous leaders, uh, as was done with this national monument. It was a specific request um, to hear those voices, um, to respect that, to respect protection of sacred areas of um, these you know, long-used lands for important uh, cultural reasons and, um, you know, let people know what's at risk. Also, yeah, yeah. And Sandy, I'm afraid we are out of time. I'm so sorry. Sandy Barr is the director for the Grand Canyon Arizona chapter of Sierra Club. Appreciate you joining us and we'll keep an eye on it and, and you know, keep talking about it. Thank you so much. And thank you to Jade and to Rick today on STD Noor. We'll be talking again next week. It'll be a Let's Drive show. 